0: And the reason why I was on there was I was looking at the, what journeys did people have to get to where they've got to. You know, there was, there was no point in me researching Frank Lampard's journey, because I don't have Frank Lampard's background, but I would look at the people with similar backgrounds to myself and go, how'd they got there? And we think that when we're on the journey of, of learning, when we're kind of young and, and full of beans and full of enthusiasm, we, we reach a point where we think that we know it all. Um, that we think that we're the expert, we're actually, we're, we're so far off being it. And and like I just said about, you know, we'll always keep learning because the game's going to change and we're going to keep evolving. Just have a humility to want to work and to want to learn, um, I think is probably one of the, the main things I could say to people.
1: It's so interesting because in, in what business would you, like you said, I mean, I'm reluctant to call them assets, but you're right. They are obviously professional players, are assets, to football clubs. You know, In what business do they have an asset and then not work on it? I'm forever getting updates on my phone or being asked to update my software because something's been fixed or something's been changed. That seems to be the the modern world. And to think that a professional player signs a contract and that is it, they just play and they're professional and we don't develop them any further is, is, is a fallacy really, isn't it? Because there's obviously so much work that can be done and there's so many good examples of players who've developed after they've become professionals. and this kind of purple patch in their career uh, it, it only it only follows that we should start with this more formal role that you're doing now I suppose
0: our recruitment pool was from maybe the division and the division below that from from abroad Scandinavia um, French second division lots of players from those type markets so we need to recruit well but we also needed to develop and a lot of those players are Playing Saturday to Tuesday, Saturday, and if we're buying players from the leagues that and they're not Championship ready and robust for the demands that that league places on you, where does the development come from? So it was just someone with a bit of a focus on are the players developing, whilst the manager and the assistants are perhaps thinking about how we're going to win the next game, which is never more than three or four days away. I mean, if I'm a you know a CEO, a sporting director, wherever it is everyone talks about sustainable football clubs now and developing our own and, and buying cheap and selling high and, you know, those type of things. If there's nothing in place to look after the development, specifically focus on make sure that these players are getting better, well, then you're going to decrease your chances of being able to do that. So just, you know, if, if you can develop, if you if you develop, make your players better, ultimately you improve performance, but you also improve the assets as well, which is where the business case comes in for the, uh, for the role. And, and we're seeing players going out for millions. You've only got to get won right really and, and straight away in the Premier League he's worth tens of millions of pounds.
1: this study basically over time was that when the, the elite player on the opposite side, and it was with elite players, but when the elite player on the opposite side could use the body position and the, and the shape and the shot that the human was playing across they had a higher success rate than when it was just shooting out of a machine and they couldn't use all that uh, that information and that's the best way I've ever known to explain perception in terms of skill acquisition and learning. And it's great to hear you saying that, because that's going to spark some interest and, some, and, and some, some, some really exciting pathways for a lot of coaches listening to this, actually. am sure.
0: the, the coaching hours have gone up, the detail behind it, the analysis, the, the, the provision, the sports science, everything that these players are getting right the way through their journey. But we're now getting those players that were then in the pre-academy and in the real lower foundation phase when those 11, 12 years old, they're now breaking into the first teams. So they've had a provision to support in their development of analysis. They've had a provision of unit and position-specific coaching and individual learning plans. They've had all of these things for 10 years. Now that the challenge is going to become its hardest, i.e. play first team football, it would be foolish to take that provision away because, oh, now you're in the first team. Now you just need to go and perform. I don't think there'll ever come a point where you go, do you know what? I've nailed this. I know everything now. There's never a completion point, I think. And if you've got a genuine passion and, and an interest for it, and for what it being a football geek, if you like, but if, if that's the case, then that's where I am because you just, you just, the game's always evolving and you're seeing new things, and not just tactically, but just different things within players. And, you know, I think success leaves clues.
1: Today's episode, I'm delighted to introduce Reese Carr, individual development coach at Wolverhampton Wanderers, better known as Wolves, in the English Premier League or EPL. Reese has a great background in soccer, first team environments, youth development as a player, also. Got a great understanding of the holistic support needed around professional footballers and perhaps even better insight in terms of youth development and players going through academy systems under 21 and under 23 football. Now working at the highest level of the game in the best league in the world in a really interesting role in the last decade we've seen develop the individual development coach. So I hope we get into all that with Reese in our time here. Delighted to welcome you to the ProPlayer.com podcast. Rhys Carr.
0: Thanks for the intro, mate. And look, if you ever branch out into being an agent, please be mine because that's um, that's that's <laughs> some welcome. Drink,
1: well, this is episode like five or six now, mate. So I'm uh, I'm starting to get I'm starting to get into this. Uh, maybe I've finally found something in football that I can do. So uh, no problem. Uh, welcome, mate. Great to have you on. Uh, personally, for me, brilliant to to talk to you again and catch up with you and watch your career develop in the last kind of 10, 12 years since we were together. Uh, obviously in our younger days as well. But I just thought, you know, I thought I had to get you on for two reasons. One, always felt that you had your finger on the pulse with like the human side and what people need. It was never just about the X's and the O's or the or the data for you. You're always much more than that. And there's a lot of people listening today who are going to benefit from your insight there. But also you've got this really interesting role now in a, in a top Premier League club where, uh, you know, 10 years ago we just didn't have individual elite development coaches. So I think there's a lot of people who are going to want to know, you know, what it's like day to day and what that's all about. And, and you know, really you're one of the pioneers of that of that new role. So, yeah, it'd be great to spend this hour with you, my friend, and uh, we'll see where it goes.
0: You know, I quite I quite like having these conversations. Sometimes I listen to them back and you remind yourself of your own journey and, and things that you've learned and give yourself a little bit of perspective as well. So I'm looking forward to
1: Yeah, we were saying off air when we about about... Um, you know, it's mad that we're kind of here doing this now and sharing, you know, experiences, hopefully trying to help aspiring coaches or young players. And it doesn't feel that long ago that we were kind of looking for any bit of inspiration we could find ourselves. And you were talking about that.
0: Definitely, definitely.
1: All right, so let's get into it. Tell us, let's start right at the top. What does an individual development coach at a Premier League football club do?
0: I should be able to reel off this answer. Off the back of my hand, but it's it's a difficult it's a difficult question to answer because there's no there's no blueprint. So uh, you know, like you said yourself, it's it's a newish role. It's probably not so novel now as it was maybe four or five years ago because more people are adopting it. But it's newish. Um, but there's no template. So you know, the head coach of a first team, everyone knows what his job is to do. It's to to try and win games. The the under twenty ones coach, the the academy manager, the and their 18s physio, whoever it might be, that roles established roles within football, everyone knows, you know, you put your own spin on it, but really, there's almost a template of, of what's needed. This this one's probably less so because it's so new and it's so novel. And, and I speak to, a you know, a few other people doing a similar role at different clubs, and we're all doing slightly different things. But it's really it's just trying to make the players better. If I give the example in the first team environment, and and having worked in the in the championship for a number of years as well, it's such a relentless league of Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. Da, da, da. And uh, and my experience in the championship was with Bristol City. So you you know Bristol City, but you know, some people listening to you might not. Um it's no disrespect to them, we or certainly where we were at the time, but we weren't a big fish in that pond at all. Uh, there's was a lot bigger fish than us. So we our recruitment pool was from maybe the division and the division below that they're from from abroad, Scandinavia, um, French second division, lots of players from those type markets. So we needed to recruit well, but we also needed to develop. And a lot of those players are playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. And if we're buying players from the leagues that and they're not championship ready and robust for the demands that that league places on you, where does the development come from? So it was just someone with a bit of a focus on are the players developing whilst the manager and the assistants are perhaps thinking about how we're going to win the next game, which is never more than three or four days away. Um, so, so that was um, great experience being able to do that and, and to try and manage those best players. And, you know, I'm proud looking back, you look at a lot of players that came through that pathway now and and I'm by, I'm by no means taking the credit for that. It was a, a whole staff and a whole club thing of doing that. But um, I think for me, the role is a no brainer. And if I'm a, you know a ceo a sporting director wherever it is everyone talks about sustainable football clubs now and developing our own and and buying cheap and selling high and you know those type things if there's nothing in place to look after the development specifically focus on make sure that these players are getting better well then you're going to decrease your chances of being able to do that so just you know if, if you can develop if you if you develop make your players better ultimately you'll improve performance but you also improve the assets as well which is where the business case comes in for the uh for the role, and, and we're seeing players going out for millions. You've only got to get one right, really. And, and straight away in the Premier League, he's worth tens of millions of pounds. And um, I don't know what the other guys do in this job, in, but I don't in tens of millions of pounds. So straight away, the business case is there to uh, to have someone in role.
1: Not yet, my friend. Not yet. Maybe after this podcast, <laughs> you will. <laughs> it's so interesting because in, in what business would you, like you said, I mean, I'm reluctant to call them assets. But you're right. They are obviously... Professional players are assets to football clubs. You know, in what business do they have an asset and then not work on it? I'm forever getting updates on my phone or being asked to update my software because something's been fixed or something's been changed. That seems to be the the modern world. And to think that a professional player signs a contract and that is it, they just play and they're professional and we don't develop them any further, um, is, is, is a fallacy really, isn't it? Because there's obviously so much um work that can be done and there's so many good examples of players who've developed after they've become professionals and hit this kind of purple patch in their career uh, it, it only it only follows that we should start with this more formal role that you're doing now i suppose
0: well i've add a couple of things into that i mean I'm by no means saying that you know people haven't coaches haven't developed players i'm I'm not saying that hasn't happened of course it has you know players that have come through you look back at the, the class of ninety two i know a generation of players that we're really fond of who grew up watching and obviously development went on, obviously they spoke about succession planning and getting them in at the right time and making sure they get in the right programs to make them the best, you know, obviously it went on before, but it's just having that, I guess, sole person in place to make sure that, that it's going on for everybody. Cause it's very difficult for a manager and assistant certainly when you have so small to, to be able to fully focus on that and, and kind of get it right. Um So, yeah, like I say, it, it's a total no-brain to, to have it in place. How people do it is is slightly different. Some people do it um, based on, on data, which is obviously a big thing that I'm sure we'll talk about coming up. Some people like to focus on making strengths, super strengths. Some people like to focus on bringing up weaknesses. Some people like to focus on um, it, around team principles of place Then the individual fits into the, to the team, uh, the collective. There's so many ways to do it, um, but you know, there's not... It's not to say it wasn't going on before. I just think it's just a little an increased focus on it.
1: You're absolutely right, and I think what's really fascinating for aspiring coaches that might be listening here, who perhaps didn't know this was a role or this was an area that probably by the time they come through in, you know, a number of years' time, this will be pretty commonplace. I should imagine in Championship, Premier League clubs, and and certainly lead into the women's game. So, I think for those people listening, could you give us a sense of you know, what it is Monday to Friday that that you kind of do. So obviously the team trains, preparing for a game. We all understand and we've had Remy Allen on already, this series talking about professional life and what the working week of a professional footballer looks like. But could you potentially give us an idea of what your role entails Monday to Friday? Is it on the grass? Is it in the classroom? Is it kind of go day by day? Is it planned in advance? Like for those people that might be aspiring to do what you're doing in a Premier League club, can you give us a sense of what it's really like?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, no no one week is the same as the next. <clears throat> so there's loads of a variety all the time. I, I guess I try and bullseye certain players. So when I'm looking at my own scheduling and, and planning where I'm going to be, I tend to look at where are the players that I'm targeting going to be in terms of their games programme. So I might be working with some under 18, some under 21, some of the guys in that transition phase into the first team. So, so what did their schedule look like, first of all, and then what are their individual needs as well? Um, and it's a real mix of of what you talk about there. So there's loads on the grass, loads. Um, and sometimes it, it can be delivering. It could be delivering where you're taking the... You know, I sometimes feel that there can be a misconception behind the individual development coach. And because of that that individual word, um, there's a lot of some really good stuff. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes around on social media now of, you know, really exciting ball manipulation drills that you see and things going on and I think that's great because I think that technical ability to be able to handle the ball is imperative um, however the way I see it within within the club environment might, is a little bit different to that um, so yes of course I work with players on a one-to-one basis sometimes but it's more small groups so if I'm working with this one striker who we've got high hopes for and we feel like he needs to be able to be better at um, pulling off the shoulder and then finishing when he's down the right hand side. That's something he's working on. Well, there's five other strikers that we've got, so let's design a practice where they're all getting better at that as well. So a lot of position specific work, a lot of a lot of unit work. Um, it might be that whatever group I'm working with on that day, the lead coach, the head coach says, "Oh, look, can you can you take a possession? We're trying to we're trying to play better centrally, and, and one of your midfielders, we want to get him." on the half turn to play forward and opening his hips late and fast and seeing the, the, those line breaking passes. So it might be a possession that we've got, but the constraints within it bring out that individual need within, within the practice, But you get, it's, it's not rocket science, it's things people have been doing for for years. So there's real variety in the role. Um, I'm I'm lucky that, you know, I work with great people, great staff, everyone is totally on board with developing the individual, even within the collective session. So it might be that I'm delivering, it might be the time uh, we have conversations before training and someone else might be delivering a, um, I don't know, a phase, an attack for defence, but we talk about certain constraints for certain players within that to try and develop the things with them that we want to work on. Um, it might be just the little whispers in people's ear in between when they are going for the drink and you pull in the one or two about, see that, you missed that chance to go through there, why didn't you see it? Because you put, didn't orientate your body the right way at certain moments. So loads of that detail. Um, goes into them and and in such a variety of ways. You mentioned in the classroom as well, I think that's a huge part. Um, I think it's a huge part and I always put the caveat when I'm working with my players that it's so easy for me to sit there and hit the space bar to pause it and go, did you see this? We all know it's very different when you're you're in the midst of it and and things are happening quickly. Um, But it's a great learning tool, tool still, the analysis. And I also find that those Perhaps conversations that you're just having with the one at that point i think they get real value from it as well um we're we're now at a generation so when we worked together was it what now 11 12 years ago whatever it was it was right at the start of the triple p and the triple p has been brilliant for english football we see the success the national teams have had and and, you know, it's got to be because the the coaching hours have gone up, the detail behind it, the analysis, the, the, the provision, the sports science, everything that these players are getting right the way through their journey. But we're now getting those players that were then in the pre-academy and in the real the lower foundation phase when those 11, 12 years old, they're now breaking into the first teams. So they've had a provision to support in their development of, analysis they've had a provision of unit and position specific coaching and individual learning plans they've had all of these things for 10 years now that the challenge is going to become its hardest i.e play first team football it would be foolish to take that provision away because oh now you're in the first team now you just need to go and perform if anything we need to sustain that we talk about development being um high challenge um high support well at the moment that it becomes high challenge, the support probably has to work a little bit more as well.
1: That's a fantastic way to look at it. And it's not something I'd ever considered. Like these kids have grown up with this as you know, they've never known anything else the last decade. And then like you say, if you don't offer that, you know, support and development as they become a pro, you're definitely missing a beat. That's a that's a really good way to look at it. Um so I want to drill into the practicalities of it a little more for those out there that are thinking about, um, you know, there's plenty of people are going to listen to us in Europe, Australia, North America, who will dream now of working in the Premier League like you are. And they'll probably really want to know, and it's one of the things I said when I started this, is I try to ask the questions that people would really want to know. They really want to know the practicalities of how it works. So, you know, 10 o'clock training, Monday morning, Gaffer's taking the session, assistant coach taking the session, whatever it is, are you kind of taking players off to the side? Are you are you working within the session? I love the idea you talked about of the, the little whispers there. I definitely want to get into that later. Yes. But with the with the with a Premier League squad, you know, what how how is your role fitting into what they are doing to prepare for traveling to Anfield on Saturday or traveling to Stanford Bridge on Saturday or traveling to the Emirates or whatever it might be? Well, I I
0: think the first thing. That you need to, to be aware of and you need to have that, I guess, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, whatever you want to call it. You need to build that trust because, it, you know, like I said at the start, I've worked in the first team environment, I've worked in the academy environment. It, whatever environment it is, if I'm the head coach of that team and I'm standing out on that touchline and the team might be doing good, bad or indifferent I want to be able to trust that the information that my coaches are giving to the players is it in line with what I'm expecting them to be able to do come Saturday, three o'clock kickoff as well. So um, that that trust part, particularly when I came into this role here, was probably my biggest, not challenge, but my biggest focus of the first couple of weeks. Not trust as in that I need to prove to them that I know my stuff, but no, the trust as in I, I want the coaches to be safe in the knowledge that I'm not telling the player anything different or, or muddying the waters or creating more grey areas. The conversations that we'll have around what each individual needs, that the certain ones that we're focusing on, are regular dialogue with the coaches on, on what it is. So that when I'm then having conversations with the player, the coach fully well knows, because we've already discussed it, that we know, and because of the planning that's gone in before and the constraints in the session, he's talking to him about his hold of play. He's giving detail around that hold of play, which the head coach knows he needs to be better at as well. And we've had that that dialogue. So yeah, you have to be around the session. Um in at first team level with individuals, I, I've gone into the detail of right, you're you're playing Saturday, you're coming up against a fullback that we know likes to dive in. So can you keep the ball close and and shift it at that moment? And you'll get yourself a yard by, by doing that. Almost I'm picturing like a, a, a hazard in his prime and keeping it close and shifting it as, as the fullback lunges in. So there's Kind of opposition detail that comes into it as well within the academy environment obviously you're less bothered by the opposition really and it's more about the development so it might just be around look these are the things that you're, you're focusing on for this period of time it might not be a game it might be a week it might be a month whatever it is so but I think you need that trust because I've stood on the touchline as well as a, as a lead coach and, and if I felt that the staff around were giving mixed messages to the players that would frustrate me so um yeah, that that trust element is really important. Once you've got that, then you can probably go in and have more, a bit more creative license with what you're delivering and how you're delivering it to the to the player. I'll, I'll give you an example. So when I came here to to Wolves, I I, I had not to be told who the, the more highly regarded players were for the first couple of months. But I just wanted to use my own eyes, so there was no bias. And then when we sit down and we talk about you know who we think's doing well and and who needs kind of what support came to some, a kind of conclusion with, with the lead coaches and the senior staff. Then it was a case of me looking to go away and prepare some, you know, video clips for, for these players and looking at, right, you do this well. I think you can do this better. And I always talk to the young players about not necessarily outcomes or, yeah, you got away with that there, but you won't get away with it where you want to get to. Uh, so, you know, we need to really refine this. Um, but those meetings, I showed all the coaches. So I did all the meetings. I sat with the coaches first. Like, this is what I'm seeing. This is what you've said you see. This is what I want to show the, the player in question. Are you comfortable with it? Now, after doing that a couple of times, it, it allowed me to build the trust. And then it almost got to a point where I was like, well, I'm going to take such and such a player today. Yeah, yeah, you crack on, you do it. Because they, they, they're they at peace with what's going to be delivered to them. So um, that's probably an example of that.
1: It's That's brilliant. It... <sighs> It's so important at your level to produce players who can play in the first team, who can be sold on, you know, so the football club survives, you know, to win trophies, to bring success to the fans. We all understand what what the EPL is all about. If you could speak to some youth coaches out there now who perhaps they don't have, so for example, let me give you an example. So in, in youth soccer in America, very few people are developing players for their own team. At 18, they're going to go off to college. They may graduate from college and go into the MLS draft and join an MLS team or an NWSL team or on the girls' side. But they're not going to play most of the time. It's changing slightly now, but they're not going to play most of the time for the youth club that's developing them in, in America. Grassroots football here with the pay-to-play model means you have full-time staff, you have full-time facilities, you have unbelievable resources around these young people. But all too often we see and you mentioned it there, we see kids getting away with things. So one example is just hoofing the ball into the box or at the crossbar for a short goalkeeper because it's going to win you that youth match on that day. But they haven't addressed in any way, shape or form how the technique of delivering the right kind of ball is going to be needed when they get to 16 or 17 or 21. Your role now is to almost do that with those players from there. Wouldn't these kids be better off at 11, 10, 9... Whatever, whatever age, learning the appropriate techniques, even if it means they don't smash the ball at the crossbar over the short goalkeeper and, and win a match at youth level, or or are they doing it right? What do you think?
0: So it's so difficult. I mean, I think techniques are paramount. I think that, you know, certainly we all know the game's got quicker. We know that the advances in sports science has made, you know, everyone's an athlete now. The, the, the speed times are, are they're quicker, they can repeat speed things, but the ball moves faster than anybody and and the brain makes quicker decisions than anybody. So I'm a bit kind of torn on that and and I don't want to sit on the fence, but I think, you know, you can be as athletic as you want, but if you can't control or look after the football, you're going to use all that athleticism just chasing to get it back anyway in the first place. And and as far as I know, the game is about having the ball and trying to score in in that goal rather than chasing after it. So for, for me, the techniques are massive. Um, you know, I don't think that will ever, for me, the techniques, whether you're five or 35, you can always be refining those techniques. And all right, at 35, it might be a case of the, the technical work you're doing within your session is just you're going over it to to maintain sharpness, to maintain that your touches right and your crisp and your movements, are good, all those. I get it. But you, your kids have to be able to handle the football. You have to be able to handle the football. Um, and athleticism you know, early on and things like that. Yes, it gives people a physical advantage, which might make the game easier for them, but they all catch up with each other. And it's, and it's where they're trying to end up rather than where they are now. Now, the caveat I will give to that is, you know, everyone wants to win. You know, the reason why we play a sport is because you want to win. I don't know anyone that's want, turned up and gone. I really want to lose today, whether they're 5 or 35. So... It's a difficult winning sense. For me, techniques are, are so 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 important. But I put myself, I've got two young kids now. And my eldest is, well, they're both, they're both in a professional academy. Um, I watch them play. Now, if my eldest was to smash one over a small goalkeeper on a Sunday morning and his team won the game and everyone mobs him and starts celebrating with him, and I'd probably be just as buzzing as as the dad on the side of the pitch, don't get me of wrong. Of course. Of course. So there's, so of course there's a balance, but I, I don't think you can ever get away from the the techniques. You never ever ever get away from the techniques. And I think that you know I, I watch some some young sessions, as many ball contacts as possible. Give them tools to be able to address the football when it comes to them. Give them more more. You know, we're only giving them solutions. You look at the top players, and they've just got solutions to every problem, and they've got those solutions because they can address the football. The ball can do what they want them to do. And I, I read a great book. A couple of years back it was called um the playmaker's advantage it was called it was about a skill acquisition book someone told me to read i loved it i probably need to read it again um but it was about uh, perception decision execution and we're just constantly in that loop constantly in that loop now for me the best players make the best decisions because they probably have got a good intelligence level nothing to do with athleticism yeah it's that intelligence level um, or they recognise those situations because they've experienced them throughout their journey before. Um, so they make the best decisions. Sorry, perception. They perceive it. Sorry. Then they make the best decisions, and then they've got the the technical expertise to be able to go and execute that and, and find that solution that that in that moment. So they're the best players. So we talk all the time about intensity. Um, you know, you, you've got to get good habits to your players anyway in terms of training intensity and things like that. But what intensity also gives you is you know, it might look like a chaotic session at times. I'm talking the older end now, by the way. I I can understand why with the younger ones, you might take that intensity away to get the technical work right. I get that. But we talk about intensity now and it's not just because we want them to hear around like, you know, headless chickens or just to get fitted and things like that. It's because we want to speed up the decision-making process in the receiver. We want to make sure that the receiver has an idea before he gets it. His touch takes him to where he wants to go because he's made the decision that he's going there. And then when he does go there, he does it with the right... um the right feel the right empathy on the ball so that the receiver can then do what he wants to do as well so you know that that's what we're we're quite big on in this phase and stage
1: it's fantastic to hear you talk about empathy on the ball and feel and i think that's something that goes un unmissed and unthought of a lot it is very easy as you said earlier to press space bar and say you know why haven't you played this ball or why haven't you done this and uh, I think having that level of empathy and understanding is massive if you're going to go in and work with elite players, for sure. The, the thing you've touched on there that fascinates me the most is perception. And I think it's the area of, the, of teaching, of learning, of the game that a lot of coaches overlook. So when you choose a block practice of just knocking the ball back and forth, you and I, we're missing out on so much in terms of perception, in terms of transfer of learning to, to a Saturday. Uh, and I'll never forget a study that I read. I'm not, as you know, I'm not a very academic man, but I remember reading a study once uh, where they, the, the experiment was basically some somebody hitting a table tennis ball across the table and the first 10 shots were a human being delivering the ball and the second 10 shots were just coming out of a machine, just firing out of a machine. And what they proved with this study basically over time was that when the the elite player on the opposite side, and it was with elite players, but when the elite player on the opposite side could use the body position and the, and the shape and the shot that the human was playing across, they had a higher success rate than when it was just shooting out of a machine and they couldn't use all that uh, that information. And that's the best way I've ever known to explain perception in terms of skill acquisition and learning. And it's great to hear you saying that because that's going to spark some interest and some and, and some 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 really exciting pathways for a lot of coaches listening to this. I'm sure.
0: Well, half half a second's an advantage, right? So if you can read that body shape, if you can kind of have an idea about where he wants to play it, and you might that might be within the, the tactical prep as well. When you're talking at the top top end, you know you'll have watched your opposition a few times. You you'll have had analysts. Analysts. It's always difficult to say that, isn't it? I don't know why. But you'll have had analysts give you an iPad full of your direct opposition of. of the, Types of passes that he favours, where he likes to receive from, the connections within the team, and things like that. But you're looking for those triggers and cues in games, and those triggers and cues give you that slight advantage to maybe be able to intercept. The art of interceptions, massive now, especially in, in top level football. And they're looking for those little little triggers and little cues. And like you say, a machine wouldn't wouldn't give you that, but you'd be able to look at body shape now. Now on the flip side, and um, Paul McGuinness, I, I I speak to Paul, and I love his stuff um you should someone you should get on here he's fascinating to listen to but he talks about disguise and we've all you know spoke talk about disguise on past things like that but i I read him i read one of his tweets once he said about disguise is is the art of making it look like it's, it's something you know exactly the same but then right at the end there's a difference there's a there's a there's a plot twist almost so we can read triggers and cues but then at the top, top, top level, those guys that look like they're going to pass there at the last minute yeah. goes in there as well. Um, so yeah, you're both looking for certain advantages on each other. One's looking at your body shape, thinking I can read that, and then the other guy's thinking I want him to read this because I'm going to go there and and uh, that's, that's the beauty. And it's the skies,
1: the sky is upon levels of disguise. That's where the game is going. And like you said, uh, you know the argument of. Would the players of 1950s still be legends today? And there's a romantic element to this, of course. But as you say, the layers of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, whereas now you probably don't survive without that counter level of disguise. And this is goes unnoticed uh, to a lot of fans in the stadium, but obviously not to elite coaches. Uh, you know, working at the level you're working at, it's a fascinating game of cat and mouse, isn't it? It is. It really is. Uh, the, the, probably
0: my favourite thing about coaching, I've said and I've been lucky enough to do a couple of podcasts but we'll never crack it or I certainly don't feel like i will like I don't think there'll ever come a point where you go do you know what I've nailed this I know everything now um there's never a completion point and and if you've got a genuine passion and, and an interest for it and call it being a football geek if you like but if, if if that's the case then that's where I am because you just you just the game's always evolving and you're seeing new things and not just tactically, but just different things within players. And, you know, I think success leaves clues. I'm I'm quoting, I'm I'm stealing that quote from a guy. uh, I used to work with Jack Lester. He used to talk to me all the time. Success leaves clues. Study the best ones. Look what they do. There's there's little clues in what they do. You know, Harlan's goal scoring record is outstanding. It's incredible. But you look where he gets to. You look the areas that he gets and receives and, and he scores gives himself the best chance of doing it because of his types of movements and where he receives it and where he always is and how he the desire to get into those areas as well then you add into that that he's six foot five he's an athletic phenomenon he's got raw you know pace and power all those things so um but the success leaves clues so study the best ones that's that's what what i've tried to do for, for
1: years it's fantastic insight reese again and um, this is another reason why i want to start this podcast so your aspiring coaches and young players who are investing their time will learn so much from listening to the insight that you've given there. Can you tell us from your experience now being in the game for so long at such a high level as you have, what are some of the pitfalls maybe? What are the things that coaches do wrong or that they aren't getting right? How can we help those aspiring coaches who might be listening today?
0: Good question. Um, I don't know the name of this graph but I'll try and paint a picture of it. Cause as you've asked me that question, this, this diagram I've seen has popped in my head. And we think that when we're on the journey of, of learning and when we're kind of young and, and full of beans and full of enthusiasm, we, we reach a point where we think that we know it all, um, that we think that we're the expert. We're actually, we're, we're so far off being it. And and like I just said about, you know, we'll always keep learning cause the game's going to change and we're going to keep evolving just have a humility to want to work and to want to learn. Um, I think is probably one of the, the main things I could say to people. Um, people respect hours, you know, putting in the hours, although I think there has to be a healthy balance. I think that, you know, a lot of us, we were both guilty of it, of doing stupid hours. And, and you're like, would you change it? No, probably not. But you do need a bit of balance in life as well. But, you know, just learn, just learn our people. But learn that, don't just like try and look at the good bits, look at the bad bits. You know, I've I've watched many a team talk, I won't name the coaches, and I thought, oh, I wouldn't use that. I'm not sure that player reacted well to that because you're looking at the body language and things like that and you log that in your own minds for when you might be in that situation and just learn because every day there is always something that you can pick up. You can see a practice that you think, I like that, but i tweak it and I would do this. You can see a practice where you go, the players aren't having that. I wouldn't do that myself. You can... You know, I've I've learned loads of people I've worked with um, just from the conversations that they have. I remember working with one fella, Derek Geary at Sheffield United, and and he's a, he's a great guy, and he never went past a player without having some kind of corridor conversation. Every interaction was a moment, was an opportunity for him to to to. He was coaching then. He was he was coaching then, and whether it just an emotional intelligence around the building and those type of things. So there's. There's so much to learn from people all the time. And and just be a sponge, just learn, like I said, success leaves clues. I think that, you know, I remember spending hours on LinkedIn um, in my younger days. And and the reason why I was on there was I was looking at what journeys did people have to get to where they've got to. Um, You know, there was was no point in me researching Frank Lampard's journey because I don't have Frank Lampard's background. But I would look at the people with similar backgrounds to myself and think, well, you know, how they got there? What? And I'm talking you know, 12, 15 years ago was almost as crude as what qualifications have they got? What can I do or, you know, to, to be in line with that? Where did they go to get their first bits of experience? What can I do? How can I get my toe into it? And yeah, look at that. Look at people whose, whose journeys that you want to follow and, and look at how they've done it. Success leaves clues and just study. There's so much to learn in, in the game. And the more... Knowledge you've got, the more that you can you can bring to the party for anyone that's going to give you a job. I guess.
1: So important, so important. Great advice again, and that's why we that's why we started this whole thing. Like, there's a level of, or there's a there's there's a there's an army of people underneath the Klops and the Guardiolas and the names and the you know who are working in the industry, changing the industry, who you know started out like you did and are now at the Premier League like you are, and it's bringing those people giving them a platform to speak to aspiring coaches. And, you know, back in the day, like you said, when we, when we were younger, we would have driven however many hours or, or done whatever we needed to do to gain this kind of information. And today, you know, it was readily available in podcast form. So that's exactly why we started this. Um, and thank you, Reese, for that, because I know, I know you, and I know that's a heartfelt, um, you know, sentiment on your part. You, you generally want to help. So going forward... Where where do you see the game going? I really want to get into this with you, perhaps because you know you're at the cutting edge. You're right there in the in the English Premier League. You're you you're you're working at a club. You've got to win. You've got to stay in the league. You've got to challenge for top half finishes in European football. We you know, we kind of know that fullbacks don't play at fullback anymore, and uh, you know the rotations and the tactical stuff that we've seen from you know Man City this world. But where where is the game going? What perhaps don't people see at the minute? Uh, that you either see or are driving forward in terms of the highest level.
0: It's funny because we, you know, we often talk about you know, certainly the young players that we're looking to develop, and we're looking at pathways right the way down through all the different age groups and things like that. And you know, sometimes you might make statements on players and go, oh, "I don't see him playing that position," and we're kind of sometimes making those statements based on what the position is now. Uh, you know the positional requirements of each position is is constantly changing. Um, there's so many players now. I see in academies you go. He's a defender, but he can play midfield, or might he end up a full back? But actually, he might be perfect in that hybrid on the outside of a three or. Um, He's a midfielder that we think doesn't quite receive it too well in the life between the lines. You know, it was a ten, but he's got good running power. Perhaps he might be an eight in, in a three-man midfield bed, and, and look at those things. And I just think the game's going to evolve so much tactically that the positional requirements are going to be so bespoke and, and unique. So you know, I'm thinking you know, some clubs in the Premier League have got such a unique way of playing that. You know there's some obviously and a tremendously amazing coaching that goes on and, and educating players to, to fit within new systems when a new manager goes in. But similarly if they've not got the skill set to, to do what the manager needs them to do, with the manager and the recruiting staff have got to go out and find someone that can that can do that. So so I think long gone will be the days of like a, a cookie cutter type, this mm-hmm. is what a centre back should be. This is what a nine should be. It'll be to fit styles and obviously the increased focus on on data in recruitment uh, will highlight those strengths and then people will want to get their eyes on the ones that have been flagged up in the different corners of the world and things like that. So I think from a develop you know, a player development point of view, we just have to give the lads as many solutions, coming back to that, and, and tools as as possible. Now, you know, what might be, you know, surplus to requirements at one club might be exactly what someone else needs. And they might be at the same level, but it's just because of the tactical positional requirements that's needed within that, that game
1: model or that methodology. It's great. Again, I'm, I'm thinking about, and again, like I said, I promised I would answer the, ask the questions. I hope that, you know, really get to it. And I think what I'd be thinking at the moment is, well, yeah, a Premier League club, you're going to get to decide all of that. There's no one going to turn around and say, well, you know, I don't want to be a forward or I don't want to be a defender. There's no parents getting involved, telling you you're wrong. That's not the world that a lot of people live in um in, in other markets, perhaps, you know, outside of Europe or outside of the really traditional professional game if you like. Certainly here in North America. What advice could you give to maybe some parents of, of young players? They're coming through the youth development leagues and maybe they don't understand why it's so important to play different positions or have different experiences or or sometimes be challenged and be the best and sometimes be the be the you know the worst player on a team or be in a winning team or be in a losing team. They don't understand the myriad of experiences that goes into getting a player to the level where you take them over. What would you say to those parents? What advice would you give to those uh, parents and coaches, I suppose?
0: The top end, you, you're dead right. You know, I, I can't very much imagine that the manager's got the parents of a 27-year-old knocking on the door because they, they see him playing a little bit higher than, than what they played on Saturday. Um, but you do get it, you know, certainly in the, in the academy level and, you know, I'm a parent myself. Every parent just wants what's best for their son. Um, but usually, and, and and I've been party to the conversations and so many in-depth, detailed conversations go on around, you know, picking a team for the weekend, the the what and the whys where where they should play, right? We're gonna play him here because we think that he needs to be a little get a little bit more one v one defending and attacking in wide areas today. So we're gonna put him here. So, you know, I, I think by the time that they come out of their main growth spurts, they're kind of 14, 15. Now we're starting to see, yeah, he'll there's every chance he'll end up in this position. But even still, some some of those aren't concrete even around that age. So I would what I would say is trust in, in the coaching and, and as long as as long as you know that the coaches in the environment have got the players' best interests at heart, then you can trust that they're making the best decision. Now whether you agree or disagree or whether it is or it isn't the best decision. The, the the player's interest if the player's interest is in priority number 1 then they you know you could re- take comfort from that for your own child now i'll put my other hat on i'm, I'm a father of of two boys that are in an academy as well and, and you and you want to see them having success but i guess my conversations with with their coaches i'll try and take a bit of a backward seat but at the same time i you know if you might be able to check and challenge certain things because you've got a bit more of an understanding but my wife's a teacher so when we go to the football reviews, I'll do most of the talking. When we go to parents' evenings for the schools, she does because I don't. I don't understand that. You know, I can um, I, I can have the conversation with the teacher, but I don't understand the curriculum. I don't understand the ages and stages. I don't know what level my nine-year-old should be reading at compared to peers in his class. I've, I've got no idea, and I guess there's none of us would really challenge teachers on that because we don't know. But for some reason, football seems to be one where everyone's... uh,
1: We challenge football uh, coaches, though, don't we?
0: Yeah. Uh, Everyone's an expert. Everyone's got an opinion. And you've got to respect that. But that's because the game is on TV. There's radio phone-ins. Everyone is entitled to an opinion because they're they're a fan or they buy their tickets. So we live in a culture where you go to work on Monday, everyone's talking about the game that the team had at the weekend. Um, So we have to be respectful as long as it's the right decision for the player. Or the player is the priority in the decision-making process. You just got to go with it because no no journey is the same. There's, there's no journey the same. I'll, I'll be working with players now that we regard as the best ones that in five years time will be overtaken by some of the ones that we don't regard as the best now. And because no no path is linear. There's there's no. It's impossible to to, to know completely and to make that totally smooth and linear from pre-academy through to first team is absolutely impossible. So you just have to do what's right for the player. Um, You have to support them. Like I said, high challenge, high support, and just as, I guess, as as a pair and just be there emotionally as well because, you know, football's hard and it ain't fair.
1: Yeah,
0: It's not fair, so you have to be able to support them through that.
1: It's so important to say and I'm really glad you've, you've touched on that both as a elite coach in the Premier League but also as a dad, you know, there's... I have to say I've had some amazing conversations with parents over the years, uh, not just in youth soccer and college soccer as well, but sometimes they really surprise you and I was chatting the other day with a, a, a dad of a player who was having a tough time at the minute and you know'm I'm, I'm ready to go into like all the Y4s and the wherewithals and kind of try and help just from an education standpoint and and before I've even done that, he's quoting barley and Hamilton back to me and he's telling me about growth and maturation and And sometimes I think you forget that, like, these people, they they do their research. It's the most important thing in their lives. You know, our kids are the most important things in our lives. You're going to go and find out. You're going to have some level of understanding. And I have to be honest, the parental support I've seen in the States is unbelievable. Like, people literally change their lives around going to watch their kids play soccer and taxiing their kids around. And it's it's phenomenal. Parents deserve a lot of credit and support. Yes. Are there some who cross the line? Are there some who don't quite understand? Are there some who, you know, win at all costs and, and really maybe damaging their relationship with their, with their child? Yes, of course. But I think at the same time, I think we're past the idea of the parents are a problem. I think the parents are a big, big part of the of the support mechanism and, and steering the ship, if you like, because they'll always have a bigger impact than we will. Of
0: course they will. And, and it's, it's good to have that communication to be on the same page, because when you know, the child gets in the car for the journey home that day. The conversation, the debrief they're having is with the parent. Now, if if the parent understands the decision making process of the club about beyond why they played that position today, or you know why certain constraints were put on them at certain times, well, then they can support that decision making process with the answers back as well. It's um, you know, I, I can't imagine myself too much to use the the school example again if. My my lads come home and they're saying, Oh, I a teacher today she's doing this math lesson, I didn't like that. I don't know. I I can't sit there and go, oh, Why is she doing that? Why is she doing multiplication stay <laughs> rather than division? What is she doing? Because I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah. but if teacher had explained to me, then perhaps I go, yeah, there's reason why they're doing it. And you explain the logic and then you I so say you can just be that that support mechanism there in the journey home because those are probably, you know, we're only we're only coaches. Um, will never be as important to a to a child as their parents ever. So we're just trying to we're only on that bit of the journey as they pass through, but their parents are always going to be there. So um, you know what they they say and how they support them is is massively
1: important. Indeed. Let me ask you then, what's the first question you ask your lads when they get in the car after a game? You know how? What, well, let me shut up. What's the first question you ask your lads when you get in the car after a game?
0: Honestly, right, it's not so much a question, but I've got a saying with my boys, um, and they know the answers off by heart now. I just tell them three things: three things from every game. Um, number one, and they go All right, try my best, All right, brilliant. What's number two? Don't don't ever give up, right. What's number three? Enjoy yourself. So if you do those three things, you you'll get to where you need to get to. So you know that's that's the most important thing for me. And that's
1: a, that's a dad who is also a coach at a Premier League club, giving that advice is great. That's wonderful insight. So I really want to get into, with you, Reese, the idea of players playing up, players playing down, players getting different experiences. You know, sometimes I think we can, we can look at it and say, oh, well, if a player's been asked to play down, uh, you know they're struggling, or if they're asked to be playing up, they're brilliant. And there's there's a lot more to it than that, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, ages and stage of development. Like we yeah. said, nothing's linear. They'll grow at different times. So, you know, they, I see some. You know, when I go watch the, the really young lads on a Sunday morning, I see some fantastic technicians. And sometimes they're being played, you know, in inverted commas down. But it might be just because they're you know physically they're not able to compete yet. Technically, they could they could play age groups up, but physically, there's no point. They'll get swallowed up. So at that age and stage of their journey, that's what's right for them and what's right for their development. Um, similarly, if you have lads that are doing well, then you might play them up, and you might realise, okay, well he doesn't win any races in that age group now, so we might keep him where where he is, or they're a little bit stronger, they push him up. So it depends what what you're looking for and what you need to develop with these certain players. There might be lads with physical advantages, but they need know, to, to improve technically. So then you keep them within their age group so that they can you know you get a few more touches of the ball. It might be that you're playing them down because physically it's more difficult for them or socially that, that comes in as well. So there's, you know, I worked with um, a lady, Sally Needham, who's doing loads of great work now with uh, neuroscience, um, particularly with like, you know, adolescent brains and things like that. I, I learned loads after, yeah, again, talk about, taking stuff from people and learning stuff. I have got loads from Sally. And even just the terminology, she tried to tell us that they're not playing up, they're not playing down. They're just playing across. So they're playing instead of they're playing across with the 14s today rather than with the 13s or you just just those little tweaks in, in terminology. Um and you know, just because one lad's playing in the fourteens this this week and his mates playing for the twelves doesn't mean that that the first one's going to be a first team player and the other one's not in five or six years time. It's where they end up, not, not where
1: they are now. I was talking with Chris van der Hagen from the Belgian FA. Chris was doing a symposium out here in Vegas a couple of years ago I was at. Uh, he, he, he told us a story about the Belgian FA as they were developing their golden generation of players. And they had side-by-side U17 national teams. They had one for the early developers and they had one for the late, late maturers. And you know, your Lukaku's and that are in the first team or the first group, if you like. And then Kevin De Bruyne basically did this for Kevin De Bruyne, Kevin De Bruyne, Ed and Hazard, these kinds of players were in the second group, both still used 17 international teams, but they ran both simultaneously and they played international matches against uh, different nations on this basis, rather than just chronological age. And he credited Kevin De Bruyne's development in his early twenties toward still having that opportunity in his late teens. Because if you remember, uh, it didn't go well for Kevin De Bruyne or Chelsea in his first stint in the Premier League he, he wasn't the player he is now so he still needed time to develop even then and had someone like the Belgian FA not thought of it that way we may never have known Kevin De Bruyne we may never have known uh, Eden Hazard and what a crime to the game that would have been so it's really interesting to hear you talk about I love the idea of playing sideways versus playing up or down and everyone's just having a recheck on how they see that and how they think about that I think is really really important changing lanes then you have been you're still you're still relatively young but you've had a lot of experience been to a number of different clubs worked in the Premier League in the Championship uh, moved around a lot can I talk to you about a couple of things I want to talk to you about what you're doing now as well the soccer science and I also want to talk to you about the practicalities of what it takes to be in the position you're in now I'm talking to you now you're in a hotel room you're kind of splitting your working week up you know, it's it's not maybe for some people aspiring to get into this industry and work in this industry, but don't quite know what it really means and what you know. This, we've had people on in in the past talk about the sacrifices that it takes. Can you start with a little bit of like real world? This is what it is to work in professional football, and then I'd love to hear more about your soccer science project.
0: Yeah, well, you know, number one, is, apart from playing, it's it's the best. It's the next best job in the world. I think you know other people might argue and that's why they do what they do and that's why I do what I do. Um so you do have to put in sacrifice you know I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be Americans to, to give an example over here there's um the Premier League and you know there are the championship below that League One League Two so we've got 92 professional football clubs. I've seen that the National League we've got a lot of full-time clubs now as well but 92 clubs um where you live you know where where your family base is you constantly have to make decisions do you uproot your family do you do you take them with you which has got implications on you know schooling and you know things like that and you know if your kids are in academies as well then you're taking them out of one place to put them so you've got all those type of things or do you travel do you commute i think so many people in the game certainly towards the older ages there's an awful lot of commuting and there's an awful lot of airbnbs and hotels and, and, and things like that and you know, my family is the most important thing in the world to me. I absolutely love my job. I'm passionate about it. But my priority number one has got to be, you know, my wife, my kids. Um, so if it didn't work for them, well, I wouldn't do it. I'd have to find something else to do. But it, it is tough to find the balance. It is it is tough. Um, I love football. My two boys love football. My wife doesn't. So, you know, you get home and there's the occasional wobble when, usually on a Thursday I find if I'm home because – um, either myself or the kids have watched. We've watched Monday night football, then we've watched the Champions League on Tuesday, Wednesday. And then when we stick the Europa League game on a Thursday night, um, if we're off on a Sunday, well, now it's what part of the country we in because th- we've got um, the kids' games, so we're, we're driving around the country to go and watch. So, you know, for someone who had little to no interest in football, unfortunately, she married me and her life is dictated now by football. So there's, there's, there's sacrifices made on on both ends um, and you, you kind of mentioned the soccer science thing there and where that came from for me was you know when we worked together like you said you'd drive for hours to go and hear someone talk or to pick someone's brain and things like that and I did it for years every off season would fly wherever and you know go to different conferences and events and things like that just trying to you know learn trying to learn but also trying to network because you're trying to create a career for yourself and opportunities and things like that and when my kids came along, I just didn't feel like I could justify anymore saying, right, I'm off now for six, seven weeks, but I'm going away for three or four. Um, you look after the kids, I'm off. So I thought, well, what shall I do? I'll bring something to us. Um, so just set up an event. Um, it's kind of like, like we call it, it sits in between science and, and coaching. So it's it's the art of coaching, but with the science that underpins it, which is obviously a big part of coaching now. So yeah we we put on events we've we've put on four or five now um been really lucky that we've had some top speakers Gary Neville's been there uh, we've had Steve McLaren um Zhao Sacramento you know some you and I both know and who's gone on and had a fantastic career as well in coaching loads of of top speakers and we have around three hundred people now come to these events which I I would never have dreamed of for me it was just an idea to you know, I still want to learn. Let's get a few colleagues in the room. Let's listen to other, you know, people that are where we want to be and, and just just go from there. And it, it's just really snowballed. Um, so it's it's kind of like an annual thing now. There's a bit of interest in doing it in different parts of the world, which if I had the time and availability, I'd love to do, but it's it's difficult to juggle that and the, the day job and the family and stuff like that. But of course um but for anything, you know, to, to talk about making sacrifice for for work. W- what I'm viewing as sacrifice of having to spend a few hours in the car and you know the odd night away and things like that, there's people that have got a million times harder job than me that are making real sacrifice and they're doing it and they're not able to barely put food on the table or living in parts of the world you know what we're seeing in the news at the moment, what's going on in in certain people's lives. So what you just have to reframe it. What I'm looking at sometimes sacrifice and think oh, I'm a bit tired, I've got to drive a couple hours to get home again now and all those things is of such obscure you know such a minuscule problem compared to the problems some people have in the world. So I'm just, just grateful for the opportunities. I I love what I do. And there's a lot of people that don't love what they do in the world. Um, I'm lucky that I do. So, um, you know, the sacrifice is probably not the right word because how can you be sacrificing if you get in to do what you love? So um, it's probably more just a little, little minor inconvenience really.
1: I think that's a fantastic way to put it. And one, we're really excited. Hopefully we're going to bring, we're going to see the soccer science event come to North America at some point uh, in, in the coming months and years. And that's something that we'll drop a link on the uh, in the description down below for people who want to visit the website and see more about it. Uh, but two, I think you've hit the absolute nail on the head there in terms of how fortunate we are to work in professional football, have worked in professional football. And it isn't all glitz and glamour. And there are times where you're out of work or you know it's not going quite as well as you want it to go. But ultimately, I think... You know the reward of being able to do something and continue to learn about things that you loved when you were a kid right into your later life is is a great way to live your life. And any inspiring coaches listening, hope you can hang on to that. I absolutely agree with you. I, I remember leaving the England team about a year after the World Cup, uh, where Jonah was born, and he's eight years old now, and and my my youngest Carly is five. And this last period where I haven't been international and maybe haven't been away as much as I used to i, I I'll never be I'll never be happier like I'll, I'll never regret not being in professional football for that period because you don't get that back um, and as you go forward things change kids get older they don't don't want you around as much It's different isn't it but I'm really glad that you you're balancing being in your boys lives being at their games working in the premier League setting up this soccer science thing everything you're doing from my point of view it's great to see you Doing so well, mate. I always knew you're going to be a huge success, and uh, we we shared many bus rides up and down the M4, M5, M6, wherever we were going, and uh, dreaming of one day being somewhere near the Premier League. And you're doing it right now, so couldn't be happy for you, my friend.
0: No, no, thank you. It means a lot. I think um, I think one thing to point out is is you know everyone you know we're ambitious. You want to work at. The top top end and you know 10 years ago if you said you know will you be where you are now i just snap someone's hand off for it but you know i sit here and as as a human uh, you know i'm ambitious and i'm always thinking how can i keep getting better how can i improve and you know you look at what would be your next steps to to keep constantly progressing and, and things like that as well so it's very difficult to switch that mindset. I don't think there's a point where you where you're ambitious, you're driven, you re- and then you get there and you go and then all of a sudden you become someone that just coasts and thinks, "Ah, oh, I'm happy with this. This or I'll take it." It's very different to switch that personality type. So I just think, you know, I've I've been the guy that has a plan in terms of right this year I want to do this because then next year I want to do that. And da, 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 da. I've also been the person that's just gone. Do you know what? No, I'm just going to be in the moment and just take each day as it comes, year by year, and focus on the now. And tomorrow will look after itself. And I still don't know which one's better. It's probably somewhere in between. But um, yeah, uh, it's um, it's nice to hear you say that. And you know, it's, I look back and I'm I'm quite humbly proud, but also still still fiercely impatient and ambitious to to want to crack on and, and do even better. You know.
1: Great advice, great insight. Again, it's been a fantastic hour. reece can't thank you enough for fitting us into your your busy schedule. And uh, like I said, I think there's a lot of aspiring coaches, young players out there who will be sat where we were perhaps 10 years ago, who will definitely take strength from your words. And that's what this was all about. You know, when when it's not going well or when you're not, where you feel like you, you want to be, hopefully we're offering some support and some, uh, guidance in those moments, so people can continue to dream, and they will, you know, get back on track, and they will end up achieving the, whatever their version of their dream is, uh, whatever they want to do with this game. So, thank you so much for your time, my friend. And uh, we're all we're all Wolves fans, and we're all supporting and hoping that uh, you continue to go from strength to strength. No, thank you,
0: and you know, If anyone took anything from it, you know that's great. that's, that's, that's what I do it. Um, I'd say as well, if anyone wants to reach out, feel free. Um, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to drop that. I don't know how you do it, link or tags or whatever in, in your bio. Um, I'm not the most efficient replier. What I, what I tend to do is, if I've got an evening like tonight, I'm in the hotel. I might go through if I've had a couple of messages over the last couple of weeks. I'll try and reply to them in that one block. But um, yeah, feel free. I'm, I'm always always keen to talk about football.
1: Brilliant. And and again, speaks to your character. And you genuinely want to help—that you would offer that level. I'm seeing more and more guests offer that level of support when they come on here because, generally, we're talking to people who actually care about the next generation of people coming through and want to help. So, thank you again for offering that. That's huge. Uh, you know, speaks to you as a man and as a coach. So, thanks very much for your time, my friend. Um, wishing you all the best, and hopefully, catch up again soon.
0: It's been great to catch up, mate. Take care.